eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right. Things are not good. Let's just be blunt. Things are not happy in Metland. The Mets lose yet another series, another series against a bad team. Another series in which you can complain about every aspect of this team for why they lost two out of three to the Colorado Rockies. Here we are on Rico Bronia. Where do you want to start? You want to rip the offense? You want to rip the manager? Do you want to rip the arms that come out of the bullpen that should not be in the major leagues? Do you want to rip the rotation? Where the hell should we start? I mean, we can start everywhere. It's a sub-500 team. They have failed in the last six games against bad teams. And what's crazy, what I'm really trying to wrap my head around is how this stretch of games that the Mets are on right now where they've played so terribly came out of absolute nowhere. That's the thing that kind of boggles my mind. And I I guess sometimes that happens in sports. Losing comes out of absolute nowhere. They're having a great West Coast trip. Everybody's happy. Everybody's having a good time. Despite concerns that we had about the roster, they were winning anyway. They lose those two games to the Giants. They lose two out of three to the Nationals. They lose two out of three to the Braves. They get swept by Detroit and now two out of three against the Colorado Rockies. So when you do the math, 0-2 against the Giants, 1-2 against the Nationals, 1-2 against the Braves. So that gets us to, let's say, 2 and 4, 2 and 6, 2 and 9, 3 and 9, 3-11. So we are in a 14-game stretch in which the Mets have lost 11 out of 14. And here's the weird part about it. When you look at the three games they won, okay, during this just horrific stretch, I think we walked away from all of those wins feeling lucky, feeling like, yeah, we won and that's great, but we were lucky to win that game. And that's how this series started. Friday night, City Field, the Mets against the Colorado Rockies, a game in which I walked out of City Field that night saying this is the Tomas Nito sucks game because, (laughs) and and I think you remember this at the beginning of this series, Buck Showalter decides to open up the series by starting Tomas Nito behind the plate, which when you take a step back is not the craziest thing in the world because Alvarez has been consistently playing two out of every three games, right? He's the majority of the time catcher. So if Buck Showalter is deciding, hey, look, I'm going to give the one start to Nito on Friday, as opposed to Saturday or Sunday, you could certainly say, what the hell's the difference, right? It's a fair thing to wonder. Uh, I think the reason he got the start, let's let's talk about that, is because of Kodai Senga. And we've talked about this before, that we have still yet to see Francisco Alvarez co- uh, catch Kodai Senga. We haven't seen it yet. So not only do the Mets want to give Senga as much rest as humanly possible, which they've continued to do, they also want to give him Tomas Nito. And while Nito may have done a great job in communicating with Senga over the course of those six scoreless innings, Tomas Nito had the kind of night that caused the Met fan at City. I was in the building. I saw it all around me. It was the kind of night to make them hate Tomas Nito. 
And that's why, despite the Mets winning the game, right? one nothing, which we'll get to, that whole night was about Nito. He strikes out in the third inning. Here's a little bit of booze. He comes up with two on, two out in the fifth. I had a Pete Hoffman moment, by the way, in that fifth inning, in which I said to my friends who I went with, pinch hit for him. <laughs> I went early pinch hit, Pete. That's usually you. That was me because I'm like, hey, I don't know how many more opportunities they're going to get. Let's just go pinch hit for him right now. Buck decides not to. Nito grounds out on the first pitch. He gets booed. Then you got the error he makes in the eighth inning as the Rockies are rallying, like the Rockies are trying to put together a little bit of a rally. Then there's the stolen base against him in the ninth inning, in which he can't get the pull out of his hands. So you've got the error. You've got the stolen base. You've got the horrific at-bats. Tomas Nito was the target of New York Met fans on Friday night at City Field. And I said to myself as I left the building that night after a win, and we'll get to all the good from that. How much was there? But a little bit of good from that. I said to myself, oh, I think he's now public enemy number one. And that Buck almost has to be careful about when he starts him at home. Because every fan base, you see this across town with the Yankees. Every fan base needs a target. And sometimes that target is fair. And sometimes that target is unfair. Nito, it, I, I stand by this, is really an unfair target because he's not that good and he's not supposed to be that good. He's not making $10 million a year. He didn't come here as a free agent signee. And while his offense is far below like his average, which isn't good to begin with, and he hasn't been playing well, I'm not defending his play, we have to remind ourselves who he is. And that our anger is not really at Tomas Nito. It's at the fact he's playing. That's really what it is. So, you know, I've seen Met fans target Roger Cedeno. I've seen Met fans target Roberto Alomar, Jason Bay. And I think all those guys, they were fair reason to. Like, they were fair targets by us. The, the Nito one, as frustrated as I am with him, because he sucks, like I'm not beating around the bush here. He's not good. It's probably not as fair as some of our past targets. But that was, Pete, that was a rough night. I mean, the stolen base in the ninth, the error, the, the lack of hitting. He he's bad. He's bad. But Buck is smart. He kept him in. He did not pinch it from the fifth because he wanted to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to boo him later on. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it came down to. He bucket knows what's going on. And let me let's be honest here, okay? You sit there and say it's not Tomas Nito's fault. He's he's the backup. He didn't come here to be the starter, but the boos are purposeful. It's meant to remind Buck and Billy Epler, hey, dude, this guy should not be on the field. You need to take him off. So so you hit it. We're not booing Tomas Nito. We're booing the decision to play Tomas Nito. We're booing the decision for him to even be here. That's that's what it comes down to. But I'll actually agree with the opinion you had. I think it was a few weeks ago, and, and we went at it a little bit about pinch hitting that early in a game. The reason I would have, and I'm I'm not even kidding, and I'm I'm usually not one to pinch hit in the fourth or fifth inning, but I'll tell you why I would have pinch hit for Nito in the fifth inning of that game. I'll give you two reasons that I think I could back up. Number one, they clearly weren't doing anything offensively in this game. Remember, the Mets had been retired nine in a row to start the game from Sensatella, who's making his first start of the year coming off an ACL injury. He can't make it up. And outside of Nimmo's home run, which was the only offense in the game, the Mets hadn't really put anything together. And it's not as if Senga was dominating. And Senga's pitch count was high enough where, in the best-case scenario, he's only pitching one more inning. So if you're afraid of the whole, hey, can Alvarez catch Senga, my answer to that would be he was pitching one more inning. One inning we're talking about here. Now, it is against the heart of the Rockies' order, but nevertheless, it's one inning. And with first and second, or first and third at that point, and two outs, I don't know if I'm getting another chance. I don't. And at that point in the game, I want to be honest with you, I didn't think the Mets were going to win the game one nothing. I thought to myself, they're going to have to score more runs to win this game. I don't feel good about this. I didn't feel great about Sango, who was putting guys on base almost every inning, which we'll get to. And I didn't feel great about the bullpen. Like, they're just going to automatically get nine outs, no problem. So at that point in the game, I'm thinking to myself, they're probably not winning the game one nothing. Obviously, I was wrong. They did win the game one nothing, as we know. So I thought between... It's a rare scoring opportunity, put up a better hitter, and the fact 
that it's only one inning I got to figure out with Alvarez catching Senga, I thought it would have been worth it because we're not talking about Luis Guillorme. And what I mean by that is Luis Guillorme is not a great hitter. We all know that. But he'll give you an at-bat and he'll compete. And it's possible Luis Guillorme will come through with a hit. Tomas Nito right now is not a major league hitter. That, that's just the facts. He, he's not. And in over the course of his career, he's not really a major league hitter. But this is worse. This is horrifically. The guy's hitting like 110. Like, I'm not making this crap up. He He's non-competitive. And most of the time, they're not good at-bats. So uh, unless you're laying down a bunt sacrifice, you don't have much of a chance with him. So I did actually think in the fifth inning, why not? Now, this is not one of my major buck critiques. I've got other buck critiques that we're going to get to throughout the pod today. <laughs> But it is a thought I had sitting there at City Field, knowing the result of what the hell was going to happen with Nito coming up in the fifth inning and first and third two outs. Nito's so bad, he's creating a new Mendoza line. <laughs> it's going to be the Nito line. It's going to be under 100. <laughs> it is. It is. It's amazing. Now, I guess where I'll give him credit is Kodai Senga pitched six scoreless innings. So if you want to say the chemistry between Senga and Nito is at an all-time high and that led to it, Fine. Uh, here's how I'd rate Senga's performance. It was it was good in that he was always able to make the big pitch when he needed to, but his control was off. And you know he walked four guys in six innings. They had six base runners against him over the course of six. I'll gladly take six scoreless innings. And considering what the Rockies' offense would later do in the series, they ended up scoring 17 runs in the next two games. It's obviously an offense that, while it's not great, is capable. They're capable of getting a big hit here and there. So that Senga was all right. You know, he walks two guys with two outs and nobody on in the first inning. He gets out of it. Uh, he walks two guys with two outs and nobody on in the third inning, and he gets out of it. He puts a guy on base in the fourth inning with two outs and nobody on. He gets out of it. Puts a guy on base, two outs in the sixth inning, gets out of it. That was really the key that when he was putting guys on base, he was always doing it with two outs. So all he needed to do was get that last out to get through it, and he puts out the six scoreless innings, and he throws 101 pitches, and he wasn't dominant. But honestly, at this point, beggars can't be choosers. The Mets got six innings from their starting pitcher. He didn't allow a run, and that is the ultimate win. You know, when you go through all the starts the Mets have gotten this season, Kodai Senga's performance on Friday night, as shaky as it may have been at times, was a top-five performance. I'm not even kidding. Like, if we went through every start that the Mets have gotten over the course of this season, I'd venture to say that the six scoreless from Senga Friday night is at least in the top five, right? It's got to be. Oh, oh, probably top three, unfortunately. And that, <laughs> let's be serious. You mentioned that he, he keeps on putting a lot of people on base. But what's up with the walks? I mean, he's got, what, 22 walks in how many innings right now? I mean, it's it's embarrassing. He puts too many people on himself. Nobody's yeah, swinging he's, at certain pitches. So right now, he's not giving up a crazy amount of hits. He's giving up fewer hits per inning. So he's thrown 32 innings. And he's given up 25 hits, which is a great number. But the walks, you're right. He's walked 22 guys in 32 innings, which is an incredibly high number. But what I like about him is that early on in his major league career, he makes the big pitch when he has to. And honestly, that's the most important thing. I mean, I'm not saying I enjoy watching a starting pitcher walk four guys in six innings and put a bunch of guys on base, especially when there are two outs and nobody on but he's able to make the big pitch when he had to. If he didn't lose the focus in the first inning and really the third inning when he walks back-to-back guys and he's able to get through that third hitter, he may have been able to go seven or eight innings because he would have kept the pitch count a lot lower. So, yeah, he walks too many guys. I mean, that's obvious just based on the numbers we gave you. But overall, when I look at this rotation, I look at the state of the rotation, which is still my biggest concern despite the up-and-down nature of this offense, I don't feel awful about Sanga. I still don't know what to expect from Kodai Senga. And I think we're going to have to see him actually pitch on regular rest at some point because you're going to have to. Like, you're going to be able to hide it a few more turns around. The Mets have an off day built in after the Colorado series, so it's it's easy. You can do it at times, but eventually you're going to have to have this guy pitch on regular rest. But overall, it was six scoreless innings, and then the bullpen kind of scared our scared us. He went back to David Robertson in the eighth inning, which made perfect sense because they had Profar and Bryant and C.J. Crone coming up, so they had the heart of the order. So Buck went back to what we talked about he didn't do in the series against Detroit in the opener of that doubleheader, where 
He went to Ottavino in the eighth inning. He went right to David Robertson in the eighth, and it was one of David's shakiest performances, to be honest, because he walks pro far to lead it off. Bryant and Crone, especially Crone, hit the ball well against him. I think CJ put it to the warning track in right field. Then he walks Elias Diaz, who all of a sudden has turned into, you know, a freaking superstar. And then Ryan McMahon hits that ball that goes off the base runner, that goes off the pinch runner Doyle that ended the inning. And I'm watching this from my view. I thought Alonzo had a shot at it, but it probably was going to sneak through for a base hit. So unless Alonzo makes some great diving play, which I think he was going to try, it's probably a base hit. It probably ties the game up. And who knows what happens from that? That's why we talk about the wins they've gotten, and I don't throw them back. I take them. They feel lucky. That was a very lucky moment in that game when McMahon hits a ball and it happens to hit the base runner on first. Then you go to the ninth inning, same thing. He goes to Adam Adovino to face Grichik, Castro, and then eventually Moustakis, who came up as a pinch hitter. And on the very first pitch, he gives up a base hit to Grichik, and then he steals second. And then a bunk gets laid down. <laughs> and, you know, so before, before like anything could happen, I mean, I, I, literally three pitches into the ninth inning, the Rockies have the tying run on third base with one out. Mike Mustaka's is coming up. And I wasn't envisioning a home run, but I'll tell you what I was envisioning. I was envisioning just a line drive to right field. I really thought it. I felt it in my bones, especially when the count went full. But to Otto's credit, he got a big strike out of him. And then he gets Charlie Blackman and they win the game. And I was very, very surprised because everything about that game felt like the Rockies were eventually going to break through, whether it was the multiple times single walked back to back guys with two outs, whether it was the shakiness of Robertson's eighth, whether it was Mustakis coming up with a runner on third and less than two outs against Otto in the ninth. That did not feel like a comfortable one nothing win, but they got it. And I leave the ballpark that night thinking, all right, we stole one. Great. Let's split the next two games, win a series, and move the hell on it. And that's literally what I was thinking. I wasn't even thinking, hey, they got to sweep this team. I know some Met fans had that thought going in. I'm like, not with the way this team's playing. Just go win the series. Because they hadn't won a series in a while. Honestly, the last time the Mets had won a series, and it remains, is the Dodgers series. Think about how long ago that was. That was when Scherzer got ejected and eventually suspended. That feels like it was six years ago. So I left Friday night thinking, A, we're lucky to win the game. Lucky to win the game. B, we can never see Tomas Nito play at City Field ever again. Or if we do, he's going to get, you know, booed. And number three, just get me a split. And I still walked out of City because I made this comment to you last time on the Rico. I've said this on the air. I am not overly concerned about this offense, despite how bad they've been recently. And by the way, I stand by that because I look at the talent in this order. And I went through this last time, so I don't want to be redundant about it. But we all know how good Nemo is. We know how Hotland Dory can get, Alonzo can get. We all love Beatty. McNeil is reminding us of the hit machine that he is. So despite some of the guys we like to pick on, I still think this is a lineup that's capable of scoring four and a half to five runs a game. I I think that's what they are. I don't think this is a pathetic offense. The problem is they're going through a rut really up until Sunday where they broke out a little bit, but even then they didn't break out completely, which we'll get to. I still feel better about that aspect of the team than the other aspect of the team, but you win a game one, nothing. You feel lucky. The only run they scored was Brandon Nimmo hitting a first pitch home run in the fourth inning, but a win's a win. They won the baseball game, get the hell out of Dodge and hopefully get a split against Colorado. Spoiler alert. They did not get the split against Colorado. If you didn't watch any of these games and you listen to the Rico for your Met updates, you know, that's not exactly what happened, but they did win the game. One, nothing. Sanga got the victory and we move on. Can I fight you on something Go real ahead. quick? I, I I don't, and I we don't have to get into the minutia of the lineup. Go ahead. But it's really not that good. And, and, I, and I'm not talking about the the top five hitters. I'm not talking about Beatty. I'm not talking about the rookies. I'm not worried about Alvarez. There is too many one-dimensional players on this team that come from the bench but get starting time. And that's a problem. Yeah, I don't think there are very many lineups in baseball that have all-stars one through nine. Like, I don't really think there's many of them, but I do see a lineup that once Canna's the productive player he's been back of the baseball card, 
I assume, and I think you do too, that Alvarez can be a plus offensively behind the plate. I don't think they have that many negatives in their order. I don't. Now, on a given night, when Buck decides to start Luis Guillorme or Tomas Nito, I can't fight that. Like, obviously, I'm not defending those guys, but I think when things are going better and they're not right now, I think this is still the strength or one of the strengths of this team, which I get more into as we get to the third game, because obviously that's when Buck made his big lineup change that I think all of us love. Uh, As far as Saturday's game is concerned, Saturday was very weird because I went to a baby shower. So I started this Met game, a four o'clock game at about 11 o'clock at night. So you talk about being on delay. I was on delay, man. So all my anger, and I run into this problem. I want to tweet out, first guesses but you can't first guess something that happened eight hours ago because everybody who sees my tweets would say well that doesn't make sense because this happened or they'd say well of course you're saying that that happened so i keep them to myself or i save them for the rico bronya that we do a few days later so we'll get through those obviously saturday was the austin gomber versus tyler mcgill game in which tyler mcgill couldn't have started the game any worse (laughs) Because he threw four straight pitches to start it and walk Charlie Blackman. And then I think he threw two more to Randall Grichik. So he, it was six for six right out the gate. And then he hit Chris Bryant. And then eventually when it looked like he was going to get through the first inning, which has been the Tyler McGill bugaboo all season long. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So despite how off his command was, he's an out away from getting through the inning, and Elias Diaz gets that RBI single, which felt like a real kick in the balls. And then the Met offense responds. Like, oh, all of a sudden we have ourselves a little bit of a pulse. Brandon Nimmo's got an infield hit. Francisco Lindor's ripping a double down the line. Lindor is so weird. His only hits are extra base hits. So it's good, but he doesn't get enough of them. Alonzo at least has a productive ground out that gets him a run. And the Mets do something they never do. They scored a run in the first inning. Almost fell out of my chair. It's like, holy crap, this is amazing. McGill, though, (laughs) who is very shaky, gives up the back-to-back hits in the second inning. Blackman gets a sack fly. The run's given right back. Then the Mets come back in the third inning. Francisco Alvarez gets a base hit. Brandon Nimmo gets a base hit. And then we saw something fascinating. So, again, let's go back to this. It's the bottom of the third inning. It's two to one Colorado. We are very early in this game. The Mets just got back-to-back hits from Francisco Alvarez and Brandon Nimmo. They have first and second, nobody out, and the batter Starling Marte. Starling Marte did something that I didn't hate. I'm not ripping it, but it shows you where his confidence is. He laid down a sacrifice bunt. That's what he did. Starling Marte, who a year ago, I think we would have been screaming at this decision, saying, come on, dude, drive the runs in. You know, the Mets may need a lot of runs in this game to win. It's not like Tyler McGill is Cy Young all of a sudden, and he lays down a bunt, and it's productive. And now the Mets have second and third one out, and they actually got a run on an out when Lindor grounded out. So from that standpoint, it worked because it directly led to the Mets tying the game, but it showed you where this guy's confidence is right now. That call is not coming from the bench. It's not coming from Buck. That's coming from Marte saying, I don't think I'm getting a hit. I struck out my first at-bat. I've been a mess. I'm lost at the plate, whether it's health, whether it's a slump. Look, none of us can really answer that. Only Starling can. But that bunt, again, not a bad baseball play. I don't hate it. I'm sure some people listening hate it, so you can't give that out away. I didn't mind it only because, hey, I got my RBI guys up with second and third one out, 
It's not the worst thing in the world, but I also don't hate it because Marte's been so bad. So I'm not believing Marte's ripping a double up the alley. You may say he should believe that, and he's getting paid as a player that should do that. I'm just telling you as a fan watching this game, seven hours on delay, I'm thinking to myself, hey, it's at least it's a productive out. What do you think of that? Is that a sign of lack of confidence from Starling? It's a sign of you, I think you said it last time on the Rico or on air with Craig. I-L, Marte, give him a rest, bring up my yeah, well, Mauricio. And that's just to give, it's twofold. It brings you a right. hot bat, and it also gives you, give Marte a break. He needs so to Buck tries out. this on a minor level because he sat him on Sunday in the finale of the series, and then the Mets have an off day Monday. So they're trying the Aaron Boone special, the back-to-back off day, to see if it gets him going. And we'll see if it does. I mean, hopefully it does. But I thought that bunt kind of showed you a lot about his confidence. And then McGill gets through the fourth, puts a couple of guys on base in the fifth inning. This is where it's tough as a manager because McGill's pitch count's high, but it's not really about the pitch count. It's about do you trust him to get through the fifth inning? Because at this point, it's a 2-2 game. He issues back-to-back walks to Gritchick and Bryant, and now you got C.J. Crone and Elias Diaz coming up. He strikes out C.J., and now Diaz, two on, two out, fifth inning, pitch count in the low 90s. I agree with Buck for keeping him in, only because I don't feel like my bullpen options are that much better. He had Steven Nagosik warming up. So I know Nagosik's, for the most part, been good when he's pitched, hasn't really been in high-leverage situations. You don't have McGill trying to get a win here, obviously, because it's a tie game. But that fifth inning is kind of like that benchmark you're trying to get past. I didn't hate him keeping him in the game. I think it just comes down to Tyler McGill's got to make a better pitch. And on two and one, Diaz hits one up the middle. Rockies take the lead. Then he gets him out of the game and goes to Steven Nagosek. I, I think sometimes you got to push your guys. And McGill, to this point, had been able to make mostly the big pitch to get through trouble. So it's it's an absolute first guess if you had it at the time. I just think right now, you know, unless I had, and he, and he wasn't, Adam Adovino warming up or Drew Smith warming up, but he's not that early in the game in the bottom of the fifth or top of the fifth inning, I just think that McGill is probably as good an option as Negosic or Leon or anyone else of that nature in that spot would be. And Diaz came through. Guys had a great year. It gave the Rockies the lead. And then we watched an offense – do absolutely nothing. And that was the story of the game. Now, they did give up a couple of runs in the sixth inning. Nagosik did when Tovar hit a two-run home run, which made it a three-run game. But looking at the Met offense from the fifth inning on, let's see what they did. They got a walk from Alvarez, led to nothing. A one-out single from Alonzo, led to nothing. Went down one, two, three in the seventh against the immortal Jake Bird. They had a two-out rally in the eighth with a single from Lindor, a walk from Alonzo, and then he goes to Jeff McNeil as the tying run in the bottom of the eighth inning. His choices at that point are McNeil, Guillaume, or Vogelbach. So I agree with going to McNeil. McNeil's more of a power hitter than Vogelbach is. Like, who, who are we kidding? Daniel Vogelbach's an on-base guy. He's not a slugger as much as he may look like one. And McNeil had a terrible at-bat. Terrible at-bat. Struck out, I think it was on three pitches to Jake Bird. They do nothing in the ninth inning, but we do see Buck make interesting choices in the ninth inning. It's a three-run game. You're facing Pierce Johnson. So it's not impossible that the Mets can't orchestrate a comeback. Mark Canna gets a one-out single, and now Escobar and Alvarez are due to hit. And so Buck makes the decision to go to Luis Guillorme for Escobar and then Vogelback for Alvarez. And I'll tell you why I hate it. Why I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, and it makes no sense. In my opinion, Pete, you chose. This is what he did, even though it wasn't direct, but I'll explain why. He chose Luis Guillorme over Francisco Alvarez. That's the decision he made. Because you could pinch at Escobar, which I have no problem with, especially hitting lefty, with Vogelbach, who, again, no matter what anybody says about him, He gets on base. The numbers are the numbers. He's on base 40% of the time. 
you're down by three runs at this point with a runner on first and one out in the ninth inning. All I want is a base runner. That's all I want. I don't give a, a two-run home run. I could argue is worse. It kills the rally. Just get me a base runner. It's the ninth inning. So you go to Luis Guillorme instead of Daniel Vogelback, because I'll tell you why. Let's say Vogelback comes up and does what he does very well. He draws a walk. Let's just say, let's walk us through it. He does what he does and draws a walk. Well, now all of a sudden, I got the tying run at the plate. Are you not letting Alvarez hit? Are you not saying, hey, Francisco, you got some pop. You've hit one home run this season. Go ahead. Hit me a three-run home run. And if you don't, by the way, I got Nimmo on deck. But instead, he goes to Guillaume, who's not a very good hitter right now. You want to say he's better than Escobar? Okay, fine. Whatever. They both suck. I would have had Vogel back and then let Alvarez hit. Like Francisco Alvarez has been hitting. He's been better over the last couple of weeks. He got off to a very difficult start upon being called up. Now, he's not tearing the cover off the ball, but he's hitting. He's getting hits here and there. Like, if you look at his numbers over the last, let's say, week and a half, he's productive, and he's more productive than those other options. So I did not get that at all. I thought it was it made no sense going Guillaume for Escobar and then Vogelback for Alvarez. I, I Just go to Vogelback for Escobar and then let Francisco Alvarez hit for himself. I hated that move by Buck in the ninth inning. Hated it. Hated it. And this is the reason why I hate Vogel. And I, I don't mean hate as like, you know, please, you know, I want the worst things to happen to you. But I hate Daniel Vogel back for this. If he does get on base, if they did sub him in, you need to then pr- bring Guillermo in anyway for, because he can't run the bases. So he's basically a one-dimensional player. Player He gets on base, and then that's it. I understand you're right. Francisco Alvarez, if he gets a home run, it solves the whole problem. But he's just not that good. I don't care how many times he gets on base. He he can't do anything with it. He is a better baseball player or can help this offense more than a handful of guys on this roster right now. He's not fast, but in that spot, I'm down by three runs. I don't care if he's fast. Just get on base. I don't even really need to pinch run for him because his run doesn't mean anything. Remember, I'm using him for Escobar. I'm not using him for Alvarez. I'm using him to get on base so I can get the tying run to the plate. Now, I can't argue that he isn't, like, versatile. He's not. He's a DH. He can't play many other positions. He doesn't run. He's not hit for a lot of pop despite that meaningless home run on Sunday. (laughs) But he can draw a walk. Luis Guillorme does not draw a walk. Eduardo Escobar doesn't do anything right now. So, I'm just looking at my menu of options. We could break down the roster, and we will probably later on at some point on what you can do. I'm looking at my menu. So here's my menu on Saturday night in the ninth inning. I got Vogelbach. I got Guillaume. I got Nito. Or I have the guys who are already in the game, which is Escobar and Alvarez. Given my menu options, I'm sorry. Vogelbach is a better option than Guillaume. He's a better option than Escobar. He's a better option than Nito. He's getting an at-bat in a more productive situation than where they used him. So I'm not arguing about all that other stuff about him. I'm just talking about that specific moment and that specific situation. He made a hell of a lot more sense to pinch it for Escobar than Luis Guillaume made that. That's my that, point. That's, that, that, that's fine. But you're right. Alvarez needs to get that bat there. What the hell are we doing with him? Like what? And I, again, this is. A lot of fingers be pointed now at Buck because you're taking the bat out of soon-to-be superstar's hand because you don't trust him. But, Buck, guess what? There's no one on this team that trusts anyway. They all suck. So <laughs> give somebody an opportunity. You know what? And here's the thing is people they all say, suck. well, they do. They really do. And you have guys who are anemic offensively right now. Alvarez has always found a way. He's, he's figured it out in AAA. It's taken some time. He'll get there. I'm sorry. His at-bats are still more productive than anything we had last year at catcher. So, please. Yeah. Do- the other thing is with him, like, we've seen progress where he's playing two out of three games. Now he's just got to play every day. And if there's a day game after night game, fine. But just stick him out there every day. And the only reason, I guess, Nito will continue to play is because of the Sanga issue. Like, I wish that – because here's the funny thing. When you look at these three games, you could have had your catcher play all three games. You had a 7 o'clock game, a 4 o'clock game, and a 1 o'clock game. There really wasn't a quote-unquote 
day game after night game. I mean, unless you want to look at Saturday into Sunday as a day game after night game, you could have played Alvarez all three games. You could have. But I think they are afraid of having him catch Nito, uh, having him catch Senga. But our eyes and the pitch framing numbers can't be lying to us. We watch Francisco Alvarez, though. There was a moment on Sunday, and we have to get to this, where I was concerned there was going to be a fight. A fight at the mound. And that was when Joey Lucchese and Francisco Alvarez both tried to feel the Brenton Boyle bunt hit in the third inning, and Alvarez kind of got in Lucchese's way. And I was staring at Lucchese. I'm not sure if they showed this on SNY. And Lucchese kind of gave one of those shrugging of shoulders, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's happening? And then two pitches later is when Profar hit the RBI double and then Alvarez and Lucchese are on the mound talking. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this, this could be a bad conversation. This could be Lucchese saying, hey, Francisco, you dope. If you didn't get my way on that bunt, that wouldn't have happened. I was afraid of like fisticuffs. Luckily, that did not happen. That did not happen. But let's get to Sunday's game. The rubber game of the three-game series. And this is the game that's really, really frustrating and scares you that this team may not be as good as we hoped. And, I, and I'll tell you why that this game feels that way. It has been easy over the last week to look at this lineup and say they're not scoring enough runs because they haven't. My faith in the lineup has nothing to do with their performance over the last week. They haven't hit. Like I, I'd be lying if I told you they were. They weren't. They, they didn't hit in the final two games in Detroit. They eked out a one nothing game on Friday against the Rockies. They scored two runs on Saturday. Do the math. They scored three runs in like 27 innings. Not hitting. So you get to Sunday, and after Lucchese gives up the leadoff home run or the one-out home run, I should say, to Gritchick in the first, the Mets do something that never, ever happens. They not only score in the first inning, but they scored three runs. Should have been four. But... I was going to say some bad names about vocal back because that play really pissed me off. I get to that in a second. They scored three runs in the first inning. It's like good times are here again. Ryan Feltner can't throw a strike. Jeff McNeil's ripping an RBI single. Even when Alonzo hits that little tapper back to the mound, everybody advances. So you got a run on the board. You got second and third one out. First pitch, Brett Beatty, two-run single. Daniel Vogelback does what he does best and draws a walk. So it's three to one, and you still have two guys on base with one out. And after Canna hits that soft line drive, Luis Guillorme, to his credit, I applaud him, comes through with a two-out single. Beatty's around third. He's going to score. It's going to be four to one Mets. And Daniel Vogelback gets caught off second. Chris Bryant immediately, instead of trying to throw the ball to the plate, where he had no shot to get Beatty, he throws to second. And Vogelback is too far off second base, and he's out. And the home plate umpire, Marvin Hudson, very quickly signals, run does not count. Run does not count. A couple of cuss words came out of my mouth. Because I'm trying to put everything together. I saw Beatty running hard. Okay, so my own eyes at the ballpark on Sunday sees Beatty running hard, so I know right away, all right, this ain't Beatty. Beatty's running. He's trying to score. It's not like he's slowing down. He isn't lollygagging. What the heck is Vogelback doing? If you want to get caught off second, by the way, that's okay as long as you get into a rundown and allow the run to score. You do that, no harm, no foul. Still not ideal, but we move on. For him to get caught at second and have that run marked off the board when every run for us is so freaking valuable because this offense can't do anything, that cannot happen. And Buck, after the game, he he criticized him but didn't want to criticize him. Like, basically, yeah, he made a mistake. And I forget who the reporter said. Uh, maybe Puma, because he asked tough questions. I like Puma. Says, well, you know, what'd you think? And Buck said, well, what I think? He made a mistake. Well, I'm thinking sit him. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe you take him out of the game. I know that's not necessarily good for you to take him out of the game, but that stuff can't happen. That's a mental mistake. That's not a physical mistake. That's a mental mistake. And here's what we've seen over the last four games. We've seen too many mental mistakes from guys that are usually not dumb. You know, the Brandon Nimmo, let's steal down by two. Vogelback's caught off second base. You cannot make these mistakes. So my question to Buck 
is as much as it's not acceptable, what are you going to do about it? The old Clint Capella line. All right, that's great. Unacceptable. What are you going to do about it? I don't think any of us wanted to see Brandon Immo bench necessarily. Daniel Vogel back to a different story. Maybe when he comes up in the third inning, you say, all right, you know what? You're sitting. It's not good for the team because, like I said to you before, you may not like Vogel back, but there's a menu of options. Those options on your bench on Sunday afternoon was a resting Starling Marte, who they were giving an off day to, Tomas Nito, Tommy Pham, and Eduardo Escobar. I'd argue none of those guys are better options at this point than Vogelback. Now, you're telling me you're calling up Syracuse in the middle of the game and you're somehow getting Mark Vientos or Ronnie Mauricio on a very quick flight? He's like teleported into the Met lineup? Fine. Now, it's a different story. But that's the kind of mistake. And as it happens, I know it's the first inning and the Mets scored three runs, but it's the kind of mistake that you put in the back of your mind and say that will cost them. Did it cost them? Well, they lost by seven runs. So not really, but it felt like it did. And it was one of those days where the Mets scored six runs, which great. They actually were productive with runners in scoring position. I think their final numbers were five for nine. Great. But they still missed out on chances. They should have scored nine runs in this game. But you know what's funny? Still wouldn't have been enough. That, that's why the Sunday game concerned me. They scored runs. They should have scored more runs, but they scored runs. But you saw some of the arms that were being put on the field on Sunday afternoon, and you said to yourself, can you really win with this? Can you win when you only get four out of your starter? Can you win when the guys coming out of your bullpen are Jimmy Yacobonis and Tommy Hunter in a close game? And I'm only including them because by the time Jeff Brigham and Dominic Leone came in, the game was over. When Jimmy Yacobonis appeared in the top of the fifth inning, the Mets at the time were winning. Think about that. They were winning the game. The score at that point was four to three. It was four to three. And Jimmy Yacobonis appeared in a baseball game. I know Jimmy's had some good moments this season in which the Mets needed him to get outs. But here's what drove me nuts, and here's the thing that's inexcusable. And I say this knowing that Tommy Hunter's not good either. I want to make that clear. I know that these options are all bad. But if you're Buck Showalter and you're managing this team, let's, let's walk through what Yacobonis did. First battery faces up a run in the fifth inning. He walks on five pitches. Okay, very quickly. Boom, boom, boom. Take first base, Randall Gritchick. The next batter hits a bomb of a two-run home run. The lead is now gone. The game is not over, but the lead is gone, right? It's 5-4 for Colorado. He then walks C.J. Crone on five pitches. Right there. Stop the tape. Jimmy's faced the three batters. Three batter minimum has been completed. He has walked the guy on five pitches, given up a two-run home run, and walked another guy on five pitches. While the other options in your bullpen are bad, I acknowledge, there can't be anything worse than continuing with the guy who just did that. And that's why, don't waste our time by saying, well, Tommy Hunter stinks too. We know that. But when a guy walks somebody on five pitches, gives up a home run, and walks another guy on five pitches, there can't be a worse option than continuing with that guy. And Buck did. And the next batter also rips a double. And he still keeps him in the game. Then he gets a big out, first pitch pop-up by Alan Trejo on the infield. Okay, fantastic. He got an out. Then on an 0-2 pitch, he gives up a two-run double to Ezekiel Tovar, who killed the Mets all weekend long. And now is the point when the Rockies ripped open a three-run lead that Buck said, all right, maybe I should do something. Now, again, Tommy Hunter comes in. It's not like he gets the job done. He gave up an RBI single himself. He gives up a two-run home run to that Dustin Doyle or Denton Doyle, and the game is completely out of reach. So I acknowledge if you take Yacobonis out when you should, maybe Tommy Hunter does the exact same stuff. I'm just saying I'm watching the game. We're watching the game. There are 30,000 people at City Field all watching the game, and we all saw after three batters that Jimmy Yacobonis had nothing. Problem is, though, 
And this is where I move my anger away from Buck, who, again, I hated the moves, but it is what it is. And I shift it towards Billy Epler. These options are terrible. These are not good options. The New York Mets proceeded to give up 13 runs to the Colorado Rockies. The Colorado Rockies came into this series averaging right around four runs per game. They are not a juggernaut offense. And usually when they score runs, it's in Colorado. So the bullpen was just, it was awful. It was terrible. And I think that's the thing that concerns me, that when you lose for one reason, it's almost easier to deal with because it's like, all right, the offense thinks, how do you fix it? The Mets proceeded, and they've been doing this for a while during this stretch, they lose for different reasons. The game on Sunday wasn't about the offense. They scored six runs. Should they have scored more? Absolutely. But they gave up 13. And when you give up 13 runs, you're going to lose 99.999% of the time. And the old cliche is it's a sign of a bad team. When you finally score runs, you give up too many runs. When you finally pitch well, you don't score enough runs. I'm not ready to tell you this is a bad team. I think that last year spoiled us on the streakiness of an MLB season. Teams are streaky. The Mets were not streaky last year. They they weren't. They were really consistent. Even when they struggled, it was never as bad as this. And it was never as bad as the way some teams struggle. But you look at some of the names in this bullpen, which I think overall had been good. The bullpen overall been a strength. And you look at this rotation, and that's why I, I say the same thing I said to you four days ago. Despite the fact that the Mets scored three runs in the first two games of this series. I acknowledge it in scoring off runs. That's still not my number one worry. It's this. It's this rotation that features a handful of number fives just trying to get through four and a half innings and a bullpen that once you get past the guys you trust, and even some of those guys you trust have been up and down, specifically out of Eno, the underbelly of this bullpen is not very good. Now, Buck did say something, and he's so right about it. He was asked by a reporter, hey, is this sustainable? You guys go to the bullpen every day early, which I've said the same thing for. And Buck made a great point. He's like, we're shifting guys in and out so much. It's not like we've got one or two guys that pitch every day. He's right. (laughs) Think about it. It's not like David Robertson has been overworked or Adam Adovino or Drew Smith. They haven't. And those are the guys you trust. All these other guys, the Tommy Hunters, the Jeb Brighams, the Yaka uh, Bonuses, the Negosics, and then the guys who aren't even here anymore, John Curtis, Denny Reyes, they've been fluctuating the bottom half of this bullpen so much. It's not overworked, but they do go to their bullpen a lot. So my fear isn't overwork. My fear is when you go to the bullpen in the fifth inning every night, you're not going to good pitchers. That's the problem. The guys that are coming in, are not good. The guys who are coming in have bounced between AAA and the major leagues. So the issue remains the same in my eyes. Why did the Mets lose the Sunday game to the Rockies? They gave up 13 runs. I'd argue they lost because they only got four innings out of their starter. If they get six innings out of their starter, this game is completely different because they're not going to Jimmy Yacobonis and Tommy Hunter and Jeff Brigham and Dominic Leone. You get six innings out of your starters and you go to that formula of guys that you actually have some level of trust for. And right now it's only three guys and out of, you know, Robertson and, and Drew, maybe you win. So when I look at what happened on Sunday, it's, it can, it's a continuation of the biggest problem this team has, which is their starting pitching. It's their biggest problem right now. And what we have to hope for is Max Scherzer to turn back into Max. Verlander to be consistent. And I hate to say it because I know he drove all of us nuts. We got to hope Carlos Carrasco coming back healthy means he's the Carlos Carrasco of last year. Because you know what he did last year? He'd have some bad performances, no doubt. He'd mix in some sevens. He'd mix in some seven scorelesses. And this freaking team could use that badly. Badly they could use that. So it's it's frustrating. The positive, by the way, from Sunday, and I, I alluded to this earlier, was the lineup change that Buck made. So he decided to sit Marte, give him the back-to-back off days like we talked about. But in doing so, he went Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo. Great. He finally moved Brett Beatty to the five spot. And Beatty responded in his first at-bat. He had himself a two-run single. The question for Buck, 
And he was asked it. So I give the New York media a little bit of credit on that. They asked about it. Would you consider keeping him there? Now, he didn't give an answer. He's going to think about it. He's got 48 hours to analyze it. But when the Mets return on Tuesday night against Cincinnati, I think it's obvious what has to happen right now. Nimmo leadoff, great. Lindor, two, great. McNeil, three, great. Alonzo, four, fantastic. Beatty, five, great. Marte, six. Take the pressure off the guy, even though there's pressure on him. <laughs> and basically say, you look, you're hitting six. You're going to get Beatty some protection, too, because I think people still look at Marte and his resume, and he's still stalling Marte. And I think that's what you do. Vogel back bat seventh. Uh, Canna eighth, Alvarez nine. And by the way, I'm sorry, and this is the part where I disagree with you, Pete. That is not a bad lineup. That's not that's not a bad lineup. Now, if you're going to tell me Starling Marte is going to 225, okay, and Francisco Lindor is going to still hit 218, that's a problem. But if you believe in those guys, and now all of a sudden you have that kind of one through six, and you're seven through nine, you're not your three through five, you're seven through nine, is a guy in Vogelbach who despite his lack of power, gets on base 40% of the time. A guy in Canna, who's a serviceable player, and Francisco Alvarez, who's the stud we all hope he is, I'm sorry, on paper, that is not a bad lineup. That's a lineup that can score runs, but it may not score enough runs if the starting pitching can't get through five innings. Yeah, the problem is we don't play the game on paper. We play it in real life, and right now, that back end sucks. Like, I don't care what you say about Vogelback. Like, it's just, he's again, and I don't want to pick on him, but even Canada, like they're not doing their job. And if you have kids, and I, I'm, I'm starting to do this so soon, we have two kids in the minors who are ripping the cover off the ball who should be up here right now playing every day because they are spots for them. Okay, they okay, could hold add on, hold energy on. to this freaking lineup. Okay, let me get to Canna instead of Vogelback because we've had the Vogelback debate a lot. And there's a lot of Vogelback hate that I agree with. The guy doesn't hit for power. And he's a one-dimensional offensive player. He gets on base and that's it. And that's not ideal. I admit that. Mark Canna is 34 years old. Mark Canna last year is a, again, let's just appreciate what he is. He's a 260, 750, 760, 770, 13 home run kind of guy. Right, he is a serviceable major leaguer, borderline fourth outfielder. Gives you quality at bats, can draw a walk. Year before that, hit seventeen home runs, seven fifty OPS. Year before that, had a seven ninety OPS. Year before that, was his best year at a nine hundred OPS. Do you think he's that guy, or do you think he now stinks? Because he's had a bad year so far. I'm not defending it, but it goes back to when are we deciding that this guy's just bad? and ignoring what the guy's done in his career. And those numbers are not great, but Pete, those numbers are fine for a guy who's batting eighth in a lineup. I, I, I get that. And you're right. Those numbers are fine. And I do agree. He probably is going to hit close to that at the end of the season. But there are, when you have better options, better options, you have better options. You do. You know that. We know that. You don't go to him. No, no, no. Listen, the moment's coming for Mauricio and Vientos because all those guys do is hit in AAA. And at some point, you've got to say, call them up. And you're right. It's pretty easy how you fit these guys in. Mauricio becomes the second baseman. McNeil goes to the outfield. Vientos DHs. Done. It's, it's not that complicated. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying until they make those moves, I still don't think this is some horrific lineup. They, they don't pitch. And the pitching issues where they can't get starters through the fifth inning continues to like snowball into worse things. The game on Sunday was all about the fact that they got four innings from their starter. And I don't want to hear about how he pitched on three days rest. He's not that good. Like Joey Lucchese and Tyler McGill right now continue to prove they are four and a half inning guys. That's tough. You want to have one guy in your rotation like that? That's fine. But if Max Scherzer's also going to pitch four innings and get bombed half the time, you can't sustain yourself because then you end up using these garbage pitchers to come into the fifth inning of a four to three game. And right. look what and happens. You, and you don't have you don't have a Trevor Williams to rely on. Last year, right. he was a key piece to that puzzle. When you did have a rough outing, you go to Trevor Williams, he gives you three, four innings, and that's great. Now we're going to Yakabonis, who could get a third of an inning. I know. 
right, let's get to some of your angry emails. I think we need to incorporate them because obviously this is a rough time. They've lost 11 of 14. They lost two out of three to the Rockies. This stretch against quote unquote bad teams, they're one and five. I mean, think about that. They are one and five in the stretch of 13 games against bad teams where we were envisioning nine and four and 10 and three. They got to go on a seven game winning streak to salvage it and get to eight, eight and five. Willis Rivkin, please turn up the heat on hate on this team. We all knew this team needed one, if not five major upgrades this offseason. Billy the Bozo made zero. It's time to start calling for his job. He's been awful. No excuses. I don't think firing a GM in May does a damn thing. So that's not defending Billy Epler. That's just, what are we doing here? I was talking to a few of my friends in the Mets text chat during the game on Sunday, and they said heads need to roll. And my counter is, what do you want to roll? You want to fire Buck? Like, I'm all for a managerial change that sparks a team, but is that the thing you want to do? You want to fire the hitting coach again? You want to move Eric Chavez back to hitting coach? Like, what do you want to do? I don't think there's an obvious firing. And look, that's littered throughout Met history, too. The coaches being fired in 99. Bobby Valentine's coaches sparked the team. The Willie firing in 2008. It happens. I, I don't think there's an obvious one. I don't love Billy Epler, and now we're going through his resume. It's a short resume because he's only been here for a year, but you can't go through another general manager this quick. That's not a defensive him. That's just a reality. Like, we're not firing him. As far as turning up the heat, we're going to rip the team. I think we have. The, the one thing I don't want to do, even though we'll do it occasionally, is relitigate the offseason every time they go through a losing streak. It's just – it's painful. I, I got to tell you, it's just – I think it's a, a worthy discussion at some point. I just don't think over the course of a 162-game season, we relitigate everything about the offseason. I'll give you one thing about this offseason. Carlos Correa has done nothing in Minnesota. I don't know if that makes anybody feel better. No, and, and listen, I, let, let's have a, a podcast um, agreement. We could do it maybe once a month. We do a check-in. <laughs> Fair enough. We, we, <laughs> An off-season check-in? Yeah. Yes. Oh, and by, by the way, I do want to say, because you mentioned Carlos Correa, and I think a lot of people killed Cohen and Epler for screwing that up and not getting Carlos Correa. Right. Hey, remember somebody else that they um the um the Mets wanted, the Mets fans wanted Carlos Rodon? How's he doing? When's he coming back? Look, there's a lot of that. If we play that game of relitigating the offseason, we also have to go through the guys that we would have signed and be fair about their production. Charlie Frederick writes, time for a semi-radical lineup shift. This was sent uh, the small, uh, Sunday morning, so before Sunday's game, keep that in mind. The bats have been obviously quiet for a while now. For the better part of the last year and a half, the Mets lineup has been relatively the same. Nimmo, Marte, Lindor, Alonzo, a few shifts here, and the 5-8 through eight and a catcher batting ninth. I don't know the right answer to this question, but I'm wondering if you feel like it's time for a shakeup to inspire some more action. Are we getting the most out of McNeil in the five hole? I can also see a world where Lindor moves to two and Beatty to three. Curious for your thoughts. So they did the lineup shakeup, and it's it's slight on Sunday with Lindor two, um, McNeil three, Alonzo four, Beatty five. I, I would stick with that and put Marte six. And then I would have – so they're going to face three righties in Cincinnati. They're going to finally end the streak of facing a lefty in every series they've played. So we can be sort of consistent with this. I would then go – I would then go Vogelback, Canna, Alvarez. That's how I would do it for now until Mauricio and Vientos get called up. But that's how I would do it. Uh, Beatty hitting third, it, it's not crazy, but what do you do with McNeil then? Because I think you're definitely going to have Nimmo Lindor 1-2 if Marte's out of the two-hole. I guess you could go Nimmo McNeil. I'm not afraid of the lefties hitting back-to-back because both guys hit lefties. Like, Brandon Nimmo hits lefties. They, they hit lefties. Brett Beatty hits lefties. So the whole breaking up the lefty thing can be a little overrated when everybody's producing. What I would try, and it's not that radical because we've already seen a sign of it, is what we saw on Sunday with Marte 6, Vogelback 7, Canna 8, uh, Alvarez 9. You agree with me on this? And by the way, don't give the answer about Mauricio and Vientos. We all agree. We all know they should be up here. For the guys that are here, would you go with that lineup or something? Why, why do we continue to put Alvarez nine? Where do you want to put? You want to go seven? I, I'd go seven. I, because he, not for nothing. If we if we go with the philosophy that Vogelback keeps on getting on base, right? Mm-hmm. 
put him nine, have him get on base, put Nimmo on base, and then you go. There you got back to back base runners. I know he's, he's stiff, but at least you got two runners in a row. If we're going to go that philosophy. Hey, listen, man, I've always been a big fan of a, a high on base guy batting ninth. I know Vogelback doesn't fit the description because he's not fast, but we have to stop viewing Vogelback because of his size as somebody he's not. He's had two home runs this season, one of which on Sunday felt like the most meaningless home run in the history of baseball. His positive attribute that nobody can deny is he gets on base. The problem is he doesn't do much else. I acknowledge that he doesn't do anything else. He he walks and then he strikes out looking at three two fastballs right down the middle, which is also annoying. Howie Chang writes, Evan and Pete, the Mets are terrible. They can't hit themselves out of a paper bag. But here is some perspective: the Braves were fifteen and seventeen and six games back at Game Thirty Two last year. They finally managed to break five hundred on June fifth, twenty twenty two. The Mets still have time to get their act together. I need to remind myself of this. Otherwise, I'll go crazy. 100%. I can give you a million examples of that. The Nationals from 2019, the Phillies from 2022. There's a lot of examples of that. Uh, I don't think anybody's worried about time. Okay? Anybody who's fearful about the Mets right now is not worried even about the games back they are of Atlanta. Though I think the Braves are a superior team and we're not winning division. It's not the amount of times left games left in the season and how many games back they are. It's looking at the team and saying, are they good? Are we wrong about our expectations? That's the concern. All right. Casey Manning wrote a a long one and he's very upset. This was from the end of the tiger series. So keep that in perspective. The team is broken. I'm having trouble putting into words what this club is doing to me. They have managed to take every good feeling we've had from the last years and flush it down the toilet. Forget the fact that they've been shut out six goddamn times already. They're not even playing smart baseball. I love Nimmo, but his steal attempt was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen on a baseball field and one that I definitely don't expect from a buck-led team. The rotation is in shambles. The pen is mediocre. And as much as you want to say the main culprit is the pitching staff, they can't hit. Lindor is an overpaid player as there is in the game. Kind of gives you nothing. Vogelback thinks he's Nimmo, always looking for walks. I love that one. It's so true. Fam, it's a home run every 20 games. Escobar can only hit righties and barely. Marte looks dreadful. I've got a better shot at getting a hit than both Nito and Guillaume. Need I go on? The team is broken. I'm sick to my stomach. We came into this year saying I hope we win the division, but we as a fallback can urinate all, all, all over ourselves and still make the playoffs due to the format. Are we sure that's the case? Depressed and wallowing Casey. I'm sure it's the case if they win 90 games or 88 games. I mean, you have to win games to make the playoffs. This is not the NBA. They can't go 79 and 83 and make the playoffs. Now, there may be a year where that happens, in fairness. There will be outliers. If you go through the last five years in the NL and the AL, I'm sure you can find a year where the sixth team that makes the playoffs would have won 80 games. But I think for the most part, yeah, you got to get in the high 80s. So, look. It's a backup because of the format we're in, but you have to play better. You have to win. That's the problem. All right. All right. Question for you. And I'm going to be kind of douchey right now. It's sarcastic a little bit, but two teams are picking two teams right now. Mets who are sub 500, another team that's awful. Who's got a better chance of making the playoffs? The New York Mets or the St. Louis Cardinals? I'm so glad you asked that because I was fearful you were going to say the Yankees and I was going to be like, come on, I don't want to answer that. Um, The Cardinals look like a mess and the Cardinals are so oddly a mess because they've always been an organization, at least from afar, that has the Cardinal way. But it started earlier in the year. Their manager, Ali Marmol, called out one of their players, Tyler O'Neill, for not hustling. And then Tyler O'Neill kind of went back at him in the media. So They started to have issues early on. They had the weird handling of Jordan Walker. I think the Mets do. I do because I don't think I'm down on the way the team is playing. I don't want to act like, ah, no big deal. I also have the perspective, though, of where we are in the season. And I do believe in this lineup a lot more than clearly most people, which is fine. I think there's a really good chance they'll score the amount of runs they scored last year. I think they could actually be a better offense, especially if Beatty and Alvarez are as good as we think. And they make the calls to Mauricio and Vientos, and they continue tearing it up. I think there's really good potential with this offense. 
Um, so I'd say the Mets. I'm not giving up on them. I'm not saying they're not making the playoffs. I I realistically said on the air last week, I don't think they're going to win the division. Well, yeah, because the Braves are awesome. Like if the Mets were in the NL Central right now where the Pirates are struggling and the Brewers started to struggle and the Cardinals are a mess and the Cubs are decent, I think we'd win the NL Central. <laughs> I, I well, would, but well, we're not in the NL Central. Well, you know, to be fair, we also both said that they were winning the division anyway before the season started. So let's, Yeah, but let's, we both – didn't we both pick the Phillies? <laughs> yeah, maybe we did. <laughs> I one last email on this. Ian Nolan writes, Evan, I'm a 37-year-old Met fan. Let me tell you my current mindset regarding the division. In my lifetime, the Mets have won four. Four divisional titles, including two of which before I entered kindergarten. Atlanta has won the NL East 17 times since 1995. <laughs> this guy's depressing me. Here's a pro tip for all Met fans. Accept your place in the baseball universe. Being the Braves bitch forever. They are better. They've been better until we prove it year after year. They own our asses. It's just how it is. P.S. Ask your co-host for me how his plan of calling up Ronnie Mauricio and Mark Vientos once we're 10 up on the Braves is going. LOL. What a fool. Signed a realistic and battered Mets fan. He's talking about you. Well, well I appreciate you calling me co-host. <laughs> and and really, dude. We continuously talk about this all the time. Like, they, what? It's weird because we don't want to bring those guys up and have the 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 energy be about we need to rely on Vientos and Mauricio to be the savior. So we want to have like a no pressure situation, but we have no option right now. We really, I mean, you don't. I think you you call guys up when they're ready. Period. Stop. That's when you call guys up. I think they're when ready. we overanalyze it. Or when they're needed, you know, if there's an injury or, or something of that nature. And I think when a lot of that email I totally get from Ian as a Met fan with what the Braves have done to us, they've always beaten us. I mean, he's right. Like, there's no, when have we gotten the last laugh on them? You know when we got the last laugh on them? When the Cardinals did our dirty work in 2000 and beat them in the divisional series and we never had to play them. That's the dead honest truth. But in light of that email, I'll ask you this. If the Atlanta Braves had the Met Farm system, wouldn't all these guys be up? And the answer is yes. And they've proven that. The Braves last year, one of the big things they did was how aggressive they were in calling up their prospects. So I think the clock is definitely ticking on it. But I do remind my fellow Met fans this. They can't pitch. And our biggest issue right now is starters don't go deep. Now, can that change in the Cincinnati series? It better because when the Mets open up the series, Max Scherzer's on the mound. When the Mets play game two of that series, Justin Verlander's on the mound. And when the Mets wrap up the series, Kodai Senga's on the mound. So the clear three best pitchers, in theory, for the New York Mets are pitching this week against the 14-20 and 20 Cincinnati Reds. Get the job done. You can email the pod, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com. Check out Pete with Tiki and Tierney during the week at 10. Me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. I'll give you this. On Thursday... As the Mets are playing the Reds and wrapping up their three-game series, I'll be on the air at uh, 2 o'clock. But I'll be on the air with a special fill-in host that day because Craig is going to be watching his daughter graduate. Congratulations. And that fill-in co-host is Joe Beningo. So if you want a state of the Mets from Joe B, we'll have it on Thursday afternoon. Appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.